Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Spanish conductor who spent most of his musical life being the concertmaster in orchestras across the UK and Europe. But in 2019, he became the chief conductor of the Dallas Sinfonietten in Sweden, and in 2020, he went from being the concertmaster of the Music Collegium Winterthur in Switzerland to being its chief conductor. It's a great pleasure to welcome Roberto González Monjas. Roberto, it is lovely to meet you, to speak to you and to see you. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, you know, as one, uh, well, I'm an ex-violinist now conductor. I don't know whether you're an ex-violinist or not yet, but we'll find out. Um, exactly. Very soon. <laughs> very soon. As I said, violinist. Um, was that your first instrument? Um, and do you come from a musical family? Your parents musical at all? Um, or was it, a, like me, a bolt out of the blue? Um, absolutely out of the blue, not a mm. musical family at all, although very music friendly, but nobody yeah. really played an instrument or, or had any kind of uh, uh, musical past. And uh, yeah, violin was the love of my life at the beginning. Mm. I sort of saw a, a video of Anne-Sophie Muta playing uh, Brahms, uh, no, Beethoven Violin Concerto. And I started insisting and I said, violin, violin, my parents somehow tried to put it off as much as they could. And at some point um, I kept insisting. So yeah. it, it went really beyond the, the usual span of attention of a child. Yes. And um, I got started with three years old and uh, that was it, just violin. That, that, that was, that, that I found my voice in a way. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, where was this? Where, where was home? This was in Spain, right yeah. now where I am, actually in Valladolid. Mm. Um, it's a, a actually quite a quite an old historic city um, in in the region of Castilla, which is you know kind of uh, it's famous for its its uh, battles and its castles and its yeah. very very plain kind of um, um, uh, geography. Um, and this is where I stayed until I was eighteen years old, and after mm. that I I I went on to to other parts of the world to 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 get started with studying. <laughs> now I don't know the answer to this because I uh, I don't think um, I know very much at all about you know youth orchestras in various parts of the world. I'm assuming at some point you would have joined an orchestra or a youth orchestra or a school orchestra, and encountered a conductor for the first time. Do you remember anything about that, or was it were you just like I was at the time, just obsessed with playing the violin. No, I I remember the feeling of playing um, in an orchestra or with anybody else than just myself yes. was always the, the, the thing I was looking forward to most. Mm. And I do remember the conductors at that time in the school shouting a lot. So I did not like that part. <laughs> but somehow the fact of, of, of playing with others did make up for the, for the, for the slight violin. Yeah. Um, and in a way, that already somehow, I think, defined the way that I wanted to work in, in the future. I was never really interested in just standing alone with my violin. But this, this, this community is amazing thing of just getting together with others and, and somehow polyphony would appear. It, it, even without really understanding it, I just knew that, what, that was what I liked. And mm. I think it, it really changed me in a way. So you, you had no designs on being an international soloist? Yeah, you. I don't know. I. I mean, I was even trained as one when I went on to study in Salzburg and and, and in London and so on. Yeah. But that was something that I just did not enjoy. I don't know about you when when you when you played violin, but I just had the feeling that I was very vulnerable when I was by myself. But I was really strong when I was together with some of my peers and and, and colleagues on on a stage. It made sense to me. I don't know if it was the same for you. 
absolutely the same. I mean, my listeners of the podcast will know this, but my, the the trigger for me was watching a, a documentary on the BBC television when I was 13 or 14 about the London Symphony Orchestra, sort of fly on the wall. I think there were four episodes. Can you imagine that? Four hours all about the London Symphony Orchestra. It wouldn't happen now. Um, <laughs> but at the time, I remember thinking, so you play the violin for a job, you get paid a salary, you also travel the world, and they give you cash to spend when you're there, uh, when you travel to these places. <laughs> Uh, and there was a bit of Maurice, Maurice Murphy, the first trumpet, was practising the con- um, bits in the adverts whilst watching the television in the morning in, in his living room. I thought, and all they do is practise in the adverts and watch TV all day. This sounds great. <laughs> but uh, on a serious note, yes, playing with other people. Yeah. And when I got to do concertos at, at Music College in Birmingham and beyond, I would be racked with nerves for a, a week <laughs> beforehand. And then the first time I stood uh, conducted or uh, went out and conducted my very first concert, which was... Brahms' tragic overture, Pulock, Organ Concerto, and Shike Six. I stood backstage thinking, there's no nerves. I'm just excited. Yeah. This is different. Yeah. No. That, that's so funny that you say that because, I mean, I still play and I'm still active with the violin. I still play solo. Um, and there's such a difference yes. um, between those two experiences. And, and it's true. I have such a degree of excitement and happiness and, and really, I mean, maybe some, some really positive nerves, let's say, some excitement when I right. go and conduct. With the violin, uh, it's such an agony. And it's always about um, this, this extraordinarily uh, detailed practice and, and, and this, this uh, yeah, you're on your own in a way. When, when it comes to conducting, you just know there's, there's, there's a whole lot of people there who are about to share the experience with you. And, and uh, yeah, it, it makes a huge difference psychologically, at least. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it is. It is what it is somehow. It's a phrase I've used uh, occasionally. Um, I use more and more often where, you know, when are we bitten by the bug uh, of conducting? An old friend of mine calls it stickitis. Hawk and Hardenberger uh, was told by a teacher he'd been he drunk he drunk stick poison. Uh, do you remember when it might have happened for you, or, or was, it, was it a gradual thing? Well, um, I think um, I was always interested in the uh, um, vertical um, thinking of, of music. You know, horizontal mm. was 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 never really exciting to me. So, for example, yesterday I, I'm here with my with my parents spending you know the Christmas time and uh, and. Um, my dad was reminding me that when I was really small, we would go to to these uh, to these uh, shops for 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 music scores. And I, you know, the, the the real interest that I had was to buy full scores. Yes. And actually, I remember the the first time I ever got hundred euros. And at that time, many years ago, that was really a lot of money from my family as a kind of a, a present, Christmas present. I went on and bought Berio's Sinfonia. Mm. So uh, that was the kind of yeah it's 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 not necessarily what what a teenager a thirteen or fourteen year old I think at the time would would go and buy but that was what interests me so I think I always thought very much in, into the vertical side which which of course l- you know lines up in a way with with the way we think uh, when when we have to conduct yeah um, and I also remember conducting you know, some sectional rehearsals directing from the violin some string orchestras already through my study time and I I I think. But that was that was that was so clear to me that this was the direction. But in the same time, I didn't really dare to say this loud. So actually, I only started <laughs> conducting professionally four years ago, yes. and I'm 33. So it really took me a long time. Uh, uh, I I was very shy. I just didn't think I had what it what it took. I don't mm. know how how did you do this at the beginning? Well, I mean, I did a year at the Conservatory in Birmingham studying with Jonathan Delmar, a name that any conductor would know mm. because of his uh, work for Bayer and Reiter and Urtext Editions. 
And then I joined the CBSO age 21, 22, and I thought nothing more of it. Uh, I then you know, wow. started dabbling with it again seven years into my career when I was 29, almost exactly the same age. Um, yeah, there you go. And, you know, and, there, and then it sort of took hold. Um, the, the, one of the reasons why I really wanted to speak to you was because there are so many similarities in the sort of time frame. You know, you, <laughs> you're at the Absolutely. age where, where I, you know, I, I really caught the bug. Um, I, yeah. I am going to go back before we talk more about conducting. I'm going to go back because, there's, you know, you, you, you go to music college, you go to Mozart University in Salzburg and the Guildhall uh, School of Music mm -hmm. in London learn with two of the most famous teachers, Igor Ozim and David Takeno. I mean, as violinists, yes. they massive names. But if you look at Wikipedia, ever trustful Wikipedia, you also see that, you know, <laughs> conductors' names appear on there as well as maybe teachers and mentors. Um, of course. You go on to become concertmaster, and this is the, the where I'm heading here, uh, eight years at the Orchestra Music Collegium Vintatur, and then six years at Orchestra dell'Accademia Nazionale di Santa Cecilia in Rome, and guest lead with Philharmonia, Berlin Radio Symphony Orchestra, Manchester Camerata, loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of people. When you look at your conducting life now, what did you learn from being a concertmaster? You know, often quoted as being the conductor's right-hand man or left-hand man or whatever. <laughs> uh, I yeah. mean, it's such an important role, isn't it, with an orchestra? Of course. I mean, I learned um, a great, really, a great deal uh, when it comes to, to 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 my to my current life. I I'm so thankful that I had the, the chance to to really be a concertmaster for such a long time and and mm. to to meet so many conductors, to solve so many tricky situations, to be in concerts where everything falls apart and you need to somehow help, to yeah. to play in those concerts where you think your life has changed just by the by the by the little gesture of a conductor. You know what I mean? This this scope of of experiences that that such job, especially um, also being in in such different orchestras, music collegium is is a much more chamber orchestra feeling, whereas Rome is of course a huge symphony orchestra. So, it, you know, I also really got to do a lot of different repertoire and uh, play with the specialists and play with the great conductors and with not so great conductors. And, and really, it, it taught me a lot about the feeling of the orchestra. You know, they, you, you, can, you know it better than I do. You, know, you can smell when, when you're taking too long to explain an idea. You can smell when the orchestra is really catching on to what you're saying. Uh, you can smell when it's when the time for a break, even if it doesn't really yeah, yeah. fit your, your schedule. Um, yeah. and, uh, and all this dealing with, with, with the orchestral life, with understanding, with, with, uh, also with the, with the less fortunate parts of it, you know, with, with players who are struggling, with, uh, with uh, tours which get too long, with recordings that get too frustrating. And I saw great people dealing with these and also people not achieving to deal with these. So this was, this was really a huge school. And I think that the moment that I entered professional conducting, uh, this was something that for me was a given and for some people who might come right off school or or have never um, been in an orchestra before, that might be a real challenge. So I'm extremely grateful that I, mm. that I learned all of that. Oh, well, uh, I've said it before, um, it, you can't buy the sort of experiences that you've had and I've had, and you're so right. You know, you can smell the air. I think I, if I don't have a break in the next five minutes, there's going to be trouble with the orchestra. Or, you know, there you go. <laughs> you, you, you know, you get within ten minutes of the end of the session, and you think, well, I could do that, but actually, I feel the time is right to stop now. Yes, ten minutes early is fine. You know, or fifteen minutes early is fine. And you, yeah, you get the feeling uh, from the orchestra. You you understand them. Um, it's just, were there specific conductors that you 
sought advice from about conducting in general. I mean, you know, you, you have a sort of, as the concertmaster of an orchestra, you have a much closer relationship probably than anybody else does. Even if they're a guest and you've never met them before, it is your role to be almost the, you know, the representative of the orchestra. Were there people you, you pick the brains of? Well, of course. I mean, uh, in Rome, uh, I was the luckiest guy to have Tony Papano as chief conductor, who's one of the most uh, inspiring artists that I know, but also one of the most generous. Yes. And um, the moment Tony knew I, I was conducting, he was the first one who said, if you have any doubts, if you need anything, just come, just, just let's talk, bring yeah. a score and we'll just read it together, talk about it together. And that of course was, it was an amazing thing. I, you know, Tony's such a busy guy. So sometimes I didn't um, trust myself to just keep going and, and, and go for every little thing. But I do remember in lightning sessions, I, I remember once uh, I, I told him, this is the first time I'm going to do a, a bigger choir piece and for the Requiem. Was, it wasn't something that huge, but still, it was important mm. for me to deal with the choir in a, in a, in a certainly, uh, you know, effective way. And he's such a master with, with dealing with big masses of, of singers, for example. Yeah. And um, I remember that being enlightening and I still use some of those little tips that he gave me about the, the, the ends of the consonants, the way that the you know staggering the breaths and, and so on. And it was fantastic. I remember great conversations with with Colin Davis when I was for example playing at the Gustav Mare Youth Orchestra. Mm. And and I, I wasn't even a concert master but I just dared to go to him <laughs> and, and basically just ask him some things. And yeah. and I remember you know Semyon Bichkov or uh, Jakub Ruja lots of different people and you also have to feel it right yes. but, um, in general whenever you have a partnership with a conductor and 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 uh, you you start playing together um they always have five minutes for you and those five minutes might really change your life as, mm. as, as you know so well so for me these these were very important moments because they they, they also made me realize uh, things that i didn't know and uh, and uh, i i i still have them in my brain as you know imprinted moments of, of real importance in my life so yeah absolutely in that list of names that's on wikipedia there's at least one conducting teacher mark stringer um mm -hmm. lessons did you have any lessons uh i mean i had some brief lessons with uh, Yorma Panala and sought some advice from Sakari Oromo and before that I had lessons at Conservatoire for a year but did you whilst you're having a busy career as a concertmaster go and take some lessons somewhere with somebody? Well no I, I never really studied conducting and uh, mm. maybe you also share this that's why maybe some people look at me with suspicion uh, at the beginning of my career which I totally understand but um, and <laughs> then, then I met uh, Mark Stringer and I yeah. have to say that was life changing. Mark yeah. is really something. Um, and we we had some sessions. He he came, observed me conducting. We worked a bit on 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 on, on things, mostly talking more than conducting. Mostly mm -hmm. trying to understand what what it means to really paint an idea with your hands and not just <laughs> wobble your arms around yeah, yeah, and somehow yeah. and then stop and tell the musicians what you're meaning with it no mm. and um, mark is such a scanner for that but he's also such an incredibly intelligent musician resourceful and 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 you know he his knowledge is is really extraordinary so actually mm. i learned a lot from him we formed a, a great um, friendship as well and 
these these sessions that we did, and and I still go to him and and, and ask him for 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 advice, and he's so generous with me. And they they really were life changing, I say. And they they just I think they came also at the right time to make me realize, hey, it's not enough that you were a concertmaster for a long time. It's not enough that you study your scores like like a maniac. You need to start putting your hands at the service of your ideas, and mm. you need to start, you know, stop apologizing for what you cannot show, and just find a way to do it. Yes, and yeah. this was really fantastic. I think Panula is probably also a bit the same, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he, uh, yeah, he, he, he basically is, <laughs> the phrase I, I like to use is he stopped me conducting like a speared octopus, you know, with the legs and arms <laughs> going in all directions, there and sort and sort of got it much more down into a contained way. And I now know that if I need to be particularly clear, I, you know, I go back to the things that Pamela taught us because I was there with a whole group of conductors. So it wasn't just the things he said to me, but I was watching him teach other people. And, you know, you, you, you learn so much that way. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. You know, the other thing that you pick, you pick up is if you're playing for somebody regularly like Papano and... Uh, do you see things? I mean, it's wonderful to talk to another person who's, who's actually doing do, now doing what I did, you know, fifteen years ago. Do you find yourself beating sometimes? I think, oh, that's very Tony Papano, or that's very, you know, uh, somebody else you played for regularly. Because um, uh, I, I would occasionally think, oh, that was a very good rattle gesture, Mike. Don't do that. Or that's that was a wonderful Oromo <laughs> upbeat. Bravo, you've done that well. Uh, do you ever feel that? I mean, yeah. Also. Yeah. Um, when I started conducting and uh, I was still being a concert master and, and yes. there would be people coming in and out, of course, and, and suddenly they do something which works so well. And yeah. obviously you want to try it out in your next concert. I remember yeah. we were doing pictures of an exhibition with Nico Frank and, mm. and Nico has these, these gestures which, which go upwards. They're this kind of very explosive, especially when there's, there's a big, big chord, for example, this, this E flat major in, 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 in the, in the, the gates of Kiev, yes. uh, when, when the whole orchestra is just playing those tutis and his hands just explode upwards. And um, it was such a liberation. I've, I've played pictures a thousand times and yeah. it never felt so good as, as when he did it. Mm. So I remember um, right after the concert, I went to him and I said, can you just tell me how you do this? I want to try it. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll tell you and explain you and I, I let you use it. That, yeah. That's somehow <laughs> how, we, how, we, how we put it. But yeah. of course, I mean, there there. There are some some tricks of the trade, some 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 things which which are very efficient. But in the same time, uh, Mikko Frank has very different arms than I do, yes. and uh, so does Tony Papano, so does Kirill Petrenko, so does Maris Jansson. So in in a way, those things will might might work, might not work. I just think that one needs to extract what's important and and find one's language, right? Mm. But um, of course. It, endless inspiration i still every time i go to a concert i pick up something that i'm like oh this is amazing i i, I want to know how to do this every mm. time mm. go back to mark stringer because a question has popped into my head when mm. i chatted to mark stringer we had quite a discussion about you know the fact that i'd said in an earlier episode that it's perfectly possible for a conductor to be a great conductor and not have very good pianism skills um oh, yeah. which he said he thought he disagreed with me, frankly. He said, no, he thought you know, the greatest conductor should always be able to play the piano and be able to play through a score. Well, I can't. Uh, I wonder whether you have any pianism skills and whether you agree with me. Because I, I actually said to him, look, just because I don't play the piano doesn't mean that I don't know what the harmonies are or what the architecture is. I can find that exactly. out myself. Admittedly, a little slower because I'm not you know, working it out of the piano. But 
Yeah. Um, well, and we, we're going to come to score preparation later, but yeah, I wonder whether you agree with yeah. me there. I, I do agree with you. I mean, I've, I really have next to zero pianist <laughs> skills. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I get terrified if my pianist doesn't show up and I need to accompany my singers or some, some kind of, you know, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. And I, I agree with you because I think we all need to find a way of uh, envisioning a score, especially listening to it. I, I spent all my life analyzing scores, you know, in a dry environment without yes. any kind of recordings or piano or anything. So by now, I think I have developed, for example, an, an inner ear that asks, that allows me to basically hear anything I put my mind to. So um, even with contemporary music, I, I don't feel that I need to go to the piano and, and, and start deciphering these chords. It's, I just... I decipher them in my head or in a paper. I'm, you know, my my uh, my studio is full of charts. So right now, I'm doing a Lutoslavsky concerto for orchestra, and it's full oh. of intervallic charts and and yeah. uh, and um, all this modal music that he uses. And uh, but that doesn't mean that I need to go to the piano. No, of course I have to say uh, I do regret it when it comes to, for example, doing an opera mm. and and having all the singers with you. It would be so much nicer and easier to to accompany them yourself. I I've seen Tony Papano do this, and yes. that's, for example, amazing because he's such a great musician he already brings them into his own flow or interpretation but in the same time uh, you know one cannot have everything and um i feel i am absolutely fine with with, with you know the, the set of skills that i have when it comes to to inner ear so i yeah. no i don't agree i i don't think piano is important in order to be a conductor and you know the trade-off being is that having played in orchestras we know things through our experience of playing in them that Pianists don't ever get because they don't have to play in, in the orchestra. So there is a trade-off. Uh, yeah. In 2019, you started as chief conductor with the Dala Sinfonietten in Falun, Sweden. Um, an yes. orchestra I'd, I'd not heard of until I I, um, I, I looked you up. Um, but then I'm assuming it's uh, it's already started is the big change when you you swapped seats. Well, you, you didn't swap seats. You, you stood up out of your seat as concertmaster and became yes. the chief conductor of your own orchestra in Vintertour at the Music Collegium. Yes. It doesn't happen often, let's say. You know, it very rarely happens. You know, I can think... You know... I think Zachary Oromo was one of the concertmasters and then ended up conducting his orchestra as boss, but I can't think of many. And maybe you're going to put yes. me right. Well, um, we we actually uh, tried to make a little bit of a, of research because we thought this is this is unusual. Yeah. And actually, um, a concertmaster who, who who act automatically, you know, right at the end of his concertmaster tenure, went onto the podium. We couldn't find anybody mm. until we came to um, Chevalier de Saint Georges, the mulatto concertmaster of a Concert de la Loge Olympique in Paris, yes. a contemporary of Mozart, yes, who yes. after being a, a concertmaster for several seasons, then he went on and, and became the chief conductor. <laughs> but actually, wow. I mean, it's, it's obviously totally anecdotic, but we, we, I thought it was, it, was, it was a funny coincidence in a way. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it, it, no, it doesn't happen often. And um, I'm very well aware of that. And the orchestra is very well aware of that. But we did... Um, somehow uh, develop such an extraordinary bond. And anyway, my task as concertmaster in Winterthur involved so much of also directing from the violin and, okay. and even conducting and, mm. and having a strong musical input that it somehow felt like really a, a natural thing. And, and we also saved these two 
get to know each other years when, yes. when the conductor yeah. doesn't dare to really deal with the problems and the orchestra doesn't dare to, to say how bored they are the conductor. We just, we know each other's strengths and, and, uh, and uh, weaknesses and we just get to work. Mm. And it's, it's, it's such a pleasure. I, I, I really love it. It's working very well, actually. Well, bravo you. I mean, you know, the analogy I was just just popped into my head was, you know, most orchestras when they they choose a new chief conductor or music director, is done on what two or three dates beforehand, and they meet each other. Absolutely. And then, you know, I remember this with both Zachary and with Andrus Nelson, who I played for um, for five or six years before I stopped playing. And then there's the honeymoon period where everybody loves each other. Um, mm -hmm. it's, yes. it, it's a couple of seasons in, the second season, sometimes the third season, when the marriage really starts and you discover whether the marriage is a happy marriage. But it sounds like, you know, you've gone straight into ha we're happily married because you already had the relationship, you know. So that, we already had eight years of it, exactly. Exactly, yeah. So the, you know, the, the orchestra's not sitting there worried about the, you know, the tricky second or third season um, because no, they know what way, to expect. We've shared so many experiences that I also know it, it helps me so much also to shape up the, the, the seasons, the programs, the tours, the recordings, yeah. because um, we've gone through so much together, uh, very good and also not so good because, you know, as, as an orchestra, it's, there's always ups and downs. So in a way, it also helps me to 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 create a, an, an even more tailor-made uh, experience uh, from my own point of view to, to, to for, for the orchestra. And they also can communicate more freely and, and you know, with, with less inhibitions than, than as if I was a, a newcomer who, who they don't want to upset just yet or they don't understand how, how, how I'm going to react. We, you know, we know everything about each other. So yeah. it's, it's, it's actually um, strangely comforting. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and the other thing is, is of course, you know, the, you, you become the figurehead of the organization of the orchestra and, and where the orchestra is based, you know, but you've already, you'd already worked there for eight years. You know, the, you know, the about Vintertour and of course. therefore the orchestra knows, well, of course he's got our best interests. He was one of us for eight years. So he, he's yeah. bound to want the orchestra to grow and go in certain directions and big, you know, and do serve the community and all that sort of stuff. You know, there's no worries in that regard either because they know that you're exactly. one of them, you know, and that, that's. So in a, at a point where also orchestras are suffering because, you know, cutbacks and, and, and yeah. so on, I think uh, it's brought a great deal of peace to the politicians, to the sponsors, to the orchestra, for example, to know that somebody from the orchestra is taking over because in a way they, they, they also, they, they think, okay, this person knows what we have and we trust him and we know him and we've already seen him and we've already dealt with him. So it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a nice thing because as you know, often when, when a new uh, conductor arrives, also in this part of the, of the business, there's, there's a big, uh, shifting of, of, of things because not, not every sponsor is going to uh, trust you from the very beginning. Not yeah. every politician is going to get used to you. And uh, that has, for example, been very, very easy, which, which yeah. is, you know, I appreciate very much actually. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. Something else that you, uh, your artistic director and co-founder of Iber Academy, um, which yes. is a music education project for, I think I read vulnerable people in a part of the population in Medellin in Colombia, which is a long, mm -hmm. long, long way away. How did that oh, yes. start? Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and how often do you go? What sort of things do you do? I'm fascinated by the idea of it. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it starts as 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 most things with us, just coincidence and a little invitation. Um, a very good friend of mine is a Colombian conductor called Alejandro Posada. And Alejandro um, used to be the chief conductor here in Valladolid. He gave me my first experiences as a soloist. He, he trusted me uh, yeah. before anybody else did. Yeah. And um, he, as a Colombian conductor, always felt that Colombia didn't have enough chances uh, so that... Uh, it's uh, it's young talents, it, it, it's young musicians would would be able to access uh, musical education of, of, of first degree. Mm. Uh, so he started um, trying just to get things moving in, in his country. And he he asked me to come to, to you know, to just play, do some things. And uh, and we started realizing that there was a very, uh, very strong interest from from some of these talented kids who, by the way, also come from from extremely complicated circumstances yes. in you know in music in understanding more in getting to know more and um, their their hunger was 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 extraordinary they, they the, the the way they 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 took what we gave them and they, the way they transformed it into something beautiful something useful for the community uh, without us even meaning to it was it was phenomenal <laughs> so we founded this this project uh, had several names now it's called finally Iber Academy and by now, ten years in, it's it's become something uh, much bigger. Uh, it affects many other countries, including Bolivia, Peru, Brazil, Cuba, mm-hmm. um, Venezuela, and um, it means we try to provide those very talented. Uh, kids and, 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 and young music students with all the tools that they could not really usually get in Colombia so that they, you know, as I always say, we teach them to fish so we don't have to fish for them. Yes. And uh, it's amazing to see now we have uh, a double bassist playing uh, with the Vienna Philharmonics. We have uh, um, a, a cellist um, teaching in, in, in the Berne Conservatoire. We have a, a whole generation of kids who are already playing in different orchestras over the world. But also all those kids are giving back. They keep coming back to Colombia. We've created a, a circle of, of exchange of information in which everybody is, uh, is you know, in a way, giving back for what they received years ago. It's, it's very special. We do everything. Mm. We do from individual lessons, chamber music, orchestral training, psychology, um, stage fright, um, mm. um, psychotherapy, lot, lot, whatever they need. And of course, we base the whole thing in orchestra. Mm. So mm. actually, my very first conducting, you know, real conducting experiences, and when I, the, the first time I, I led a symphony from the violence was in Colombia as well. So I think I've learned much more than anything I can teach to my kids, even when they, they are so grateful, usually. Mm. But um, yeah, it is, it is very special. We use the orchestras as a tool to make them understand that, you know, together one can get uh, things done quicker, faster, more beautiful, stronger in a way. And um, it's, it's quite an amazing thing, I have to say. We went from doing Mozart Divertimenti to doing later in the season Rite of Spring uh, here wow. in Europe. So, wow. you know, it's, 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 it's not a bad thing, I have to say. <laughs> well, bravo you. And, and it, it, it sounds like an incredible thing. Um, uh, something I didn't know anything about, but you know, I've looked up and read online, and it just yeah, it sounds an amazing thing. And to give those those kids a chance, and to have such you know, obviously passionate expertise given to them, uh, it's wonderful. Uh, bravo you.
my you know my mom uh, she's a she's a pedagogue she's all her life she's taught in university yeah. and she she writes books and my dad also writes books they they they've always been about communicating their passions and their 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 field of expertise to others and you know not not wanting money for it but just you know mm. be, because they're so passionate about it and i think that that stayed on with me and and for me it's, it really is a very important part of me i try to collaborate with as many youth orchestras as i can and i try to teach as much as i can as well because yeah. you know that that's not a, a part of the business that will make you rich but that's really not the point the point is that doing that i think it, it's 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 such a necessary thing to to pay it forward to to give uh, uh, something for all the things that I've received during my study time, for example. I, I, I couldn't be more more lucky about it, you know? Yeah. Well, it might not make you financially rich, but it makes you emotionally rich. You know, I, you I agree with you. Exactly. I, conduct, I conduct youth orchestras still. I conduct two amateur orchestras as well. Uh, both of them uh -huh. very, very, very good. Um, and and I wouldn't miss it. I wouldn't want to stop doing it because... There you go. And also teaching, conducting... You know, why keep hold of these secrets that you've learned or you know things oh, that no. we've learned as orchestral musicians you know let other people know and pass on your experiences i think it's so important um, i couldn't agree more good <laughs> uh, one final question before we do the 10 questions and it's the one that everybody has been asked when you come to learn a new score and we know that you don't sit at the piano <laughs> we, we've yeah. learned that already yeah. we know that already <laughs> <laughs> um oh, you might pick up your violin to put some bowings in but how do you do it um when you start, do you start from a big overall view of the score and then zero into micro details or go from page one to the last page or even do an Omer Mir Welber who says sometimes he learns the first page and the last page, then the second page and the penultimate page and works his way in, which I haven't tried <laughs> well, yet, but maybe I will. Um, I and, haven't either, I have to say. <laughs> and and uh, for the conducting geeks amongst us, are you a scribbler? Are you a red, blue, black highlighter pens? Uh, or do you keep them pretty clean? I am a I'm a rainbower actually. I oh, use colors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, color is very important. Actually, people somehow get very amused when they see my scores because I like um, having this visual perspective, especially when it comes to to musical material. For example, mm -hmm. right before talking to you, I was. Uh, dealing with the third movement of, of Lutoslavsky's Concerto for Orchestra, as I said before. And there's this Pasakalia at the beginning, yes. um, these eight bars in the bass, and, and then the, the, the variations actually come on the sixth bar of each Pasakalia. So at some point, it's such a, you know, it's your mind can, can take, mm. at least my mind can take seeing it like that without, without having more, you know, easier or, or, or an easier way to see it. So yes. yeah, I use colors in order to, for example, codify the themes or the, or the or the musical material that helps me a lot, especially in scores like I don't know, Zarathustra or mm. uh, or any, anything that has to do with Strauss, with Wagner, everything that has to do with a lot of motivic um, uh, development. This this is something that I that I like to use. Mm. Now, when it comes to to the, the to the scores, um, how to start? It's a it's a good question. I try to be very methodic, but in the same time, the, the more the more I do it, the more I understand that every piece speaks to me in a different way. Mm. So what I'm trying to walk away now from is approaching every piece the same way. My 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 modus operandi until now has been to go from big to small and to always do structure first. And yeah. then the moment that harmony comes into play, then that also means motivic development and, and thematic development. And, and very often that already brings to phrasing. And, uh, and after a while, it's, it's, it's kind of all clear. But um, 
I mean, after years, there's there's also sometimes when you don't need to write anymore whether this is a tonic and a subdominant and yeah. a dominant in a, in, a, in, yeah. a, in a Mozart symphony, right? So I just let the piece tell me something first. So very often I'll just read through the piece several times. One of the things that I really avoid is listening to any recordings. Okay. At any given time in the in the I don't know. At least six months, if I can, before I start studying the score, because I find that even residually there's ideas staying in my ears that might not let me really see what's written, but rather what what I already hear in my head. You know, mm. so I try to be very fanatic about this. Um, then later, once I've analyzed the score, I'm 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 very happy to listen to things just to to start understanding also the world of sound, the different um, you know ideas that 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 have been already yes. put on the table, but not before having really given my everything into into trying to, to to create my own vision of the piece you know this is this is very important mm. but yeah um i would say methodically i would go always from from big to small and uh, and really at the very end just just get into the intervallics and the and the, the, the microbiology of the piece <laughs> but um Lately, I'm I'm also trying different things and uh, letting scores maybe sounds a bit uh, metaphysic this, but letting scores talk to me and then see what what it means. And sometimes, maybe not you know not as as uh, let's say as as uh, as funny as what Omer just just did with the last page and the first page. But yeah, yeah sometimes it's just this section seems really apparent. So I will do this section, and then this fugue in the other movement is now so clear. And then little by little completing the, the puzzle you know not just yes. from the corners but rather from the from the inside of the of the puzzle yeah yeah uh, that you makes know, that makes perfect sense work yeah. in progress i guess yeah exactly yeah and and i was going to ask uh, about recordings but it sounds like you, you know you uh, i sort of do it a similar way though i do you know if if i'm going to learn a, a piece I, for instance when i learned the lutoslavsky i think i listened to a couple of recordings with the score open, yeah. just sort of made some light pencil pencil marks, occasionally saying, "Don't do that," or you know, <laughs> having yeah, heard course, it, of course, of course. But then, but then I will, you know, literally not listen to a recording again until I've gone all the way through it with a, you know, from big to small, fine tooth comb and whatever. And then at the end, I might listen to another couple again, just to see, as you said, what the great conductors have done in the past, or, or, or you know, what the latest version by the latest you know conductor is. But by then, my opinion's been formed. And, you know, occasionally I might go, oh, do you know what? That's a really good idea. But more often than not, I'm, you know, I'm sort of got my my plan. You know, you know what, the, what What I find difficult, for, for me at least, is having played so much of the repertoire. Yes. Yeah. Um, and having played it for so many times in so many different ways, I already have this, the, I mean, most of the pieces are still in my in my ears. And be it in a more or less present way. So somehow, yeah. by reading the score, you can awaken all the harmonies yes. and all the you know all the colors. But um, more often than not, I find that that um, especially when it comes, for example, to Beethoven or or the or the, the you know Mendelssohn, Schubert, Schumann, Brahms. There's so many ideas which are in, in traditions, and, and and now yeah. with traditions, I don't necessarily say that you know say it in the positive way mm. of the term, and ingrained in the DNA of what we do in the orchestras and, and yeah. conductors, conductors all over the world that I find it so dangerous. And, and often I I just need to, um, I mean, thank God I, I live alone and, and therefore I, I don't I don't have anybody to judge me. But sometimes I just scream or, or sing while screaming, you know, at, at the top of my lungs, trying to really convey the line that I want, not the one that I have in my mind because of, you know, this tradition until yeah. it starts making sense because it's so hard to to fall into the trap of just doing whatever you 
you've done in the past yes. uh, or somebody else has done in the past. Mm. And um, for example, in the Brahmses, I find it horrible because there's so much material, all these Walter Blume books and all, all, all these things that tell us that Brahms was played in such a different fashion than, than we play today. Yes. And, um, and yet, whenever you start looking at the score and um, and, and, and you, you say, and it's always the same. And it's so hard to let go of those preconceptions. And, yes. and um, yeah, it, it takes me months sometimes to really start listening mm. to the idea that I really want in the way that I want it. It's frustrating, but it's, it's such a fantastic process. Mm, mm, absolutely true. Um, then you come I mean, in front of an orchestra and uh, you sing it to them and they look at you as if you're mad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, they do that. They do that regardless with conductors, as, as hey, you well you're know. Right, you're right. <laughs> as you well know. <laughs> I remember when I first started conducting and each time I would conduct a Beethoven symphony for the very first time, to get the interpretations out of my head that whoever, whether it was Simon Rattle or Zachary or whoever had come and done it, to get them out of my head, I would immediately open the score and the first thing I do is listen to the Roger Norrington recording of the you know, oh, of <laughs> at a different pitch at a different tempo than anybody else and it would immediately take all of that wash my brain clear but it sounds like what you do by singing and by screaming and shouting and whatever and even sometimes you know picking up a violin or whatever it's 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 trying to get whatever is in your your head you know out of out of and especially if you rehearse with somebody like you know when I with Simon Rattle, for instance, when we did all the Beethoven's, you know, we rehearsed them, we rehearsed them, we rehearsed them, and we could play them almost without him being stood there. But it means that it gets lodged in your brain. And when you come to conduct it, you need to unlodge it and look at it freshly with your own eyes. And also because those conductors and those pieces, they're so epic. And yes. if you don't have a vision for a Beethoven five, then you probably shouldn't conduct it, right? Yeah, absolutely, so, um, yeah, yeah. And when when you've played it and, and it's been convincing and it's been wonderful, then then of course it's it's really hard to get it out of your system. But I I you know maybe some people think this is arrogance. I really don't don't think so. I just think we all need to go through a, through our own process of learning and also mm. through our own discovery of these pieces. And even if it means uh, making mistakes and and finding outrageous ideas, but it's you know rather that than just following blindly whatever other people have done in the past and not asking why yes. and and this is something that i i live by every day and i think it's mm. very important if, if one wants to have also sustainable uh, a musical life you know as a yeah. conductor people want to hear your version they want to hear you do your thing you know if you're going yeah, to conduct Beethoven 7 <laughs> yeah they want to get, conduct Beethoven 7 they don't want to hear another rep replication of Carlos Kleiber's performance at the there, concert there you, go. you know they don't want which that. i love yeah. Yeah, so, exactly yeah 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 there you go <laughs> If you are new to this podcast, you may not know that there is another way you can learn about conductors and conducting by subscribing to my Patreon page. You can hear interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers and hear their thoughts on conducting and conductors. You can read my diaries when I go and guest conduct. You can take part in group meetings with other like-minded fans of this podcast. You can read articles on conducting and conductors and also see videos of the great conductors and you can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium and from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most places, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. 
Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode and every other episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Roberto Gonzalez-Monjas. Roberto, it's 10 questions time, and I always start with, what sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate? Oh, well, hate, I know for sure that's construction. I can't mm. stand it. Uh, I, I I just get, I, it gets on my teeth. I hate it. <laughs> yeah. um, which I love, uh, well, maybe two. Um, one is the sound of, of cooking, you know, the sizzling, the, 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 the boiling, the simmering. I love cooking. That's it's a very comforting thing. Yeah. Uh, soup bubbling away, for example. Yes. And nature in general. I, I'm, I'm very close to nature. And, uh, you know, just being in a mountain, that's, that gives you already everything you need, basically. That, that, that sound is, is the connection that I have to nature in a way. I, I, you know, the same as breathing the, the pure air. That's, that's, yeah, I would say so. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, in line with the last question, I think I would either be hiking, doing mm-hmm. something in nature or, or, or something sporty or cooking. Yeah. yeah. I, cooking is my therapy. And uh, I, I love cooking so much. So I can also spend a whole day just batch cooking for the next week. And <laughs> I'll spend six hours, seven hours cooking and I'll be the happiest guy in the world. Yeah. So either either cooking or or something in nature. That's that's probably my my you know my comfort zone, I would say. Yes. And when you cook, are you somebody who buys lots of cookbooks and tries out various famous recipes, or are you somebody who stands in the kitchen with a whole load of ingredients and thinks, right, what what am I going to conjure up today? An experiment. No, I, I, I mean, I like recipes as a as a start. Yeah. Um, I love trying new recipes, and I just love handling um, ingredients in the fairest and best possible way. And from then onwards, I start my own experiments. But I, I don't just, you know, I don't see bacon and. Uh, uh, I don't know, and, and pears and uh, tomato <laughs> sauce and, and, and hope to make, a, you know, to yeah. discover something, something. No, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> My wife and I watch, uh, there's a, a show on uh, on BBC television called MasterChef The Professionals, which of is prof- professional cooks doing, you know, um, cooking off against each other. And we absolutely love that program. But sometimes you, you, yeah, you and- know. You hear, you know, strawberries with fish. Yeah, exactly. But strawberries with fish. Monica and what was the name? I I watch all these videos as well. Monica and and Marcus. Yes. The the 20 minutes. And oh, yeah, I love it as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's when they put things like strawberries with fish and we sit there thinking, would you eat that? No, I'm not sure I would. But yeah, somebody's got to try it one day. So bacon and pear. One has to be also adventurous, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. Try it. it. Try bacon and pear and then email me and tell me whether it works. Um, I'll let you know. I'll let you yeah. know. <laughs> uh, number four. Uh, should be a nice, easy one for you. Who would be a favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Oh, interesting. Um, funny, because I was thinking about this not long ago. Um, there's so many. But actually, if I had to say just one name, I would probably say Nicolas Hanokua. Mm, brilliant choice. Um, I, uh, you know, there's so many great conductors who, are, you know, I, 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 I love the interpretations of so many, uh, mm. so many wonderful, as you were talking about Kleiber, uh, there's Barbiroli, there's, uh, there's Klaus Stemster, there's, there's lots of great people. But actually, what I like about Harnoncourt is not just interpretations, it's the fact that he got us all 
to think twice before ever giving a downbeat. You know, mm. he was such a great communicator who made us, made me, and and I think so many generations understand the necessity of thinking outside the box, of going beyond the nose, of understanding the context, of of being faithful to the text, on 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 understanding the vision behind the piece and 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 giving it the respect that it that it requires, and um, I think probably some of the most strongest influences and experiences that I've had had to do with Harnokur, either his books or seeing him rehearse in Salzburg or, or getting to meet him many, many years ago. So I would say probably, yeah, that's him for so many reasons. Harnokur, yeah. Totally agree. Uh, he was one of my two choices uh, when I gave the answers to that question in episode There you 50, go, wow. Um, for pretty much similar reasons. Um, the question that some conductors find a little bit harder, though, is can you name some current favourite conductors or conductor? Oh, sure. Up to you. But, you know, yeah, as I said, some people find it difficult to answer. Some people don't at all. Well, you see, I've sat in an orchestra. Um, yes. And I've... I mean, the, I have such admiration for, for so many conductors because I think uh, the sheer... Um, careers that they have, the sheer capacity they have to keep moving audiences and keep convincing orchestras to, you know, to follow their fantastic vision. I mean, that's amazing. So yeah. I can't tell you just one. I mean, no, off, off the top of my head, yeah. I mean, I already named Papano, who I, who I absolutely mm. adore. And Daniele Gatti was a, was a life-changing one for me. And, and he's, the way he conducts and he knows about music, I, I, I you know, hardly ever seen somebody like that. Yeah. Um, Watching Tillemann conduct uh, um, a singer on the first row uh, in, in Dresden and, and seeing him do all these things that I've seen him, you know, uh, unique. Semyon Bichkov, yeah. uh, um, and, and Zachary Oramo, you, you mentioned mm. him before, who I absolutely adore. I remember at Sibelius first that will never, ever, ever leave my mind. Yeah. Andres Nelson, you also men mentioned before. Um, but also uh, people like Andrew Manzi, for example, who is now uh, doing extraordinary things with, with, with Mozart and, and, and Beethoven and Mendelssohn. There's so many conductors who I love, um, yeah. just to name a few. But I would say those, you know, in the, in the, in the latest year that maybe those kind of names have been the, the, the ones have, who have left, uh, you know, the strongest mark in, 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 in me at least. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Um, well, I, you know, two of them just come to mind. One is, a, I guess, an obvious choice, Matthew Passion. Yes, yeah. Um, the other one is a, a much less known work, which I just did now in November. It's called Die Weise von Liebe und Tod des Kornetzter Rilke, or the... Um, the, the songs of um, love and death of Cornet Rilke, um, uh, written by Frank Martin. It's okay. a one-hour monodram for mezzo and orchestra. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing about both pieces is that they're, they're such journeys. And you have, you know, you have the evangelist in the in the Matthew Passion. You have this this uh, this mezzo soprano who is somehow narrating the story of this soldier yeah. um, in the in the 18th century. And somehow this this emotional journey full of ups and downs, full of pain, full of love, full of discovery, full of uh, betrayal, they they somehow feel and felt very similar in a way. Mm. And um, of course, they're, they're totally different languages, but I think the moment I did Matthew Passion, I was really um, a newcomer when it comes to such big Baroque choral pieces. And when I did the, the Frank Martin, it was the first time that, that I got into this drier, uh, more atonal um, 
world track marathon. So I think both of them were a similar process. They were extremely exhausting. Mm-hmm. I became totally obsessed with both pieces for months. Yeah. I couldn't think of anything else. I couldn't, you know, really, I couldn't fathom anything else than those two pieces. They really became an important part of the DNA in a way. And yeah. um yeah, I would say those two. Maybe, maybe it's a strange combination, but but yeah, for me, probably those two. Yes. Well, I've never conducted the Matthew Passion, and I don't know the Frank Martin, and I will look it up. Um, Please do. It, yeah. It's it's one of those pieces. It needs a bit of time, but it grows on you. And one once it grows on you, I mean, you know, the the text of of Rilke with the music of Martin is one of the most poetic and beautiful and sad things I've I've. Uh, I've dealt with in years. It's very special. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Um, I think my running gear, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I had a very unhealthy life before the pandemic. <laughs> and uh, when I got stuck, like everybody else, and had yeah. three months of not doing anything, I decided to uh, catch up with the with sport, which was something that I was really rubbish at. Mm. And uh, I, it, it bothered me so much that I could be so disciplined about practice and study and, 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 and travel and everything, but I could not get a sport routine. And this changed me. And, you know, it changed me so much that in three months, I lost 20 kilos. Brilliant. It's a lot. Yeah. Uh, but it also gave me back this connection to nature and, and made me realize how much I need to, to, to stay fit also for my, for my mental state in a way. And um, now one of the things that I never forget is to take my running gear, because no matter where I am in the world, running, it, it saves me for, from stress and it, it allows me just to vent and to let off steam and also to discover new cities, which is really fantastic because I actually you manage to, to um, uh, you know, to see cities differently. You, you get to, 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 to see wonderful parks and rivers and, and uh, it, it's, it's quite amazing. So that's definitely something I would not forget. Nothing, nothing at all with music. <laughs> no, well, I, I don't run. Um, I do walk though, and I agree with you. You know, it's a wonderful way of seeing walking down by a river. And you know, obviously, I'm exactly. I'm passed by runners on a you know every every other minute when we're doing there that. There you go. But yeah, during lockdown, I built a rowing machine which is on the floor next to me, and I'm afraid since lockdown stopped, I've I don't think I've been on it. So um, I ought to do something. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely ought to do something. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Well, um. The first thing that springs to mind is early mornings. Um, <laughs> but actually, um, I think that's also up to us. You know, um, until I would say two years ago, I was just not clever enough to plan wisely. So mm-hmm. I would have to do a lot of early mornings and, and you know, lots of 4 a.m. start in order to catch a 6 a.m. flight, in order to be at 8.30 a.m. in another airport, in order to rehearse at 10 a.m. And that was just not clever. It was just yeah. something yeah. that I, I, you know, I've really battled myself in order to, you know, just take less work, but just do it right. And, and that extra day and that extra morning free just, just helps. Mm. So... Mm, I, it's not it's not fantasy. It's real life because I'm trying to change it myself. So, uh, for example, in the in the last season, I think I only had two early mornings in the whole season, which you know I'm talking four or three a.m. mornings, and um, this is something that I, I I'm trying to change at least because I I just don't I don't feel it helps. I don't feel well when I get to rehearsal. I don't feel I am in the right state of mind, and it just 
negatively impacts uh, my my performance or my or my ability to to rehearse. And and I've also seen conductors who would come straight from their plane into rehearsal or from their helicopter into their rehearsal <laughs> and then leave right after rehearsal to go to another orchestra. And it almost never gave me the feeling that they were fully, you know, hundred percent with us. Yes, and I, I just don't want to replicate that. Mm. I think it's a very good answer. I mean, sometimes it's unavoidable because <clears throat> as musicians, yeah. we, we absolutely love, I mean, in, in British musical parlance, it's called slotting, to slot in a gig in between <laughs> two other gigs. Yes, you yes. Know, it's absolutely wonderful. You think, oh, I've just slotted that in there in in the diary. But the only way you can slot it is to get that stupidly early flight or or the overnight thing or whatever it is. Uh, so occasionally we do it. But yeah, I, I try and avoid it at all I costs. Just- I remember at some point uh, early uh, into my, you know, new conducting career that I, uh, I was flying, uh, I remember, I think from London somewhere. And uh, I was thinking to myself, I wish I wasn't doing this project, this next project. And then I, this somehow, this alarm inside my head just started ringing. It cannot be Mm. that I'm already wishing I wouldn't be doing this concert just because I'm bothered by the condition that, you know, the the, the, the early flight, the being tired, the the not feeling in the zone um, and and fully committed to what I'm about to do, you know? Mm. And um, I just think that's dangerous. And and that can also become um, philosophy of life where people just, you know, jet set from one place to the other, but they don't really feel they're they're fully ready and, and, to commit to, to to the project they're about to do. So I'm 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 just trying to be maybe too conservative, but I, I'd rather uh, you know avoid a concert or 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 not take that gig uh, for now at least, so that everything that I do somehow makes sense to me. It's 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 quite important for now, yeah. Because you've still are, I would imagine, a, a functioning concertmaster and violinist, and you're a conductor. I wonder whether there's a third profession other than your own that you would have liked to have had a go at. Oh yeah, and that that's that's very clear to me. Either a chef or an architect. Mm. Mm. Chef, for obvious reasons, I've already uh, mentioned yep. my passion for food, and and architect because I've always been fascinated at how people can envision spaces in which we get to live, we get to feel good, we get to feel comfortable, we get to experience new things, you know concert halls, restaurants, schools, you know, these creating spaces which 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 make us better and which mm. make us human. I find it in a way it's it, you know what chefs and architects and musicians do is 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 not so different, is it? No. We're trying to create spaces where where people have experiences, you know, where where people can travel in time, where they can remember, where, where they can discover, where they can feel, no? And um I've always been very uh, fascinated by those specific three things, you know, food and and architecture and uh, and music. So yeah, I I would say so. The, the only problem is that I was rubbish at math, so I don't <laughs> think I would have ever been able to to be an architect. But but with food, I'm I'm pretty sure I could have uh, uh, learned how to how to cook. So yeah. Um, still, I would say those two. Yes. Well, there's a growing list of people who've given the same answer, and I was—I am one of the people on that list. And yeah. I think it's also partly because with architecture, you're looking at building a building, which you know you're looking at the overall picture of it, you know the size, you know, the size, how it looks from the outside. But proper architecture is looking at where all the all the electrics go, where all of the waste of disposal goes. 
And it's so much so similar to learning and processing a score to conduct it. You look at the whole overall picture, but you're also looking at the bowings of the violins, where the woodwinds are going to breathe. Uh, how, how does the percussionist have enough room to get from his side drum to his xylophone? All of those little minutiae things. I think it's very. There are lots of similarities, and of course, running Absolutely. a team a team of chefs in a restaurant is exactly the same as 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 conducting an go. orchestra. And yes. we've got to question 10. And seeing as you've mentioned food in at least three of your other answers for the previous nine. Exactly. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm no, it's fine. Question 10. I I'm, I'm, can't wait for the answer. Question 10, of course, okay. is if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, um, I'm a bit of a geek. So I travel the world eating and, yeah. and, and or, or I eat the world while traveling, however you want to <laughs> yeah. see it. But actually, if the war was ending, um, I'd go back to the roots. You know, my every time I arrive here to Valladolid, where I am, my parents always cook the same dinner um, hmm. the first night that I'm here. And that's Spanish tortilla, you know, omelette, the, yes. the, the potato omelette, and, and jamón ibérico, you know, the, this, this beautiful cured ham, yeah. a bit of olive oil, wonderful freshly baked bread. And a great bottle of Rivera del Duero. In this case, I would maybe say, I don't know, Vega Sicilia Unico 1994 that I just tried. I'm also very passionate about wine and it blew my mind. But yeah, something to do with, with the roots, the, the flavor at home. I, I, I would say so. Um, I also like fine dining and, and, you know, more kind of the, the posh things. But in, in a way, I have a feeling that like great music, um, Great food is very often about comfort, comfort food. You know, taking you mm. to the, you know, to the roots. So, uh, the same way that you can you can trace back um, uh, a little little folk song in 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 a, in a Beethoven symphony or a little waltz in in the Brahms piano sonata, um, it's the same with food. So, I I would probably say that just simple but really so fantastically delicious. Just <laughs> home by mum and dad. Yeah, well, it sounds yeah. it sounds delicious, uh, and I love what you said about going around e eating the world, or you know, as you go around the world. I'm exactly the same. Uh, I love going to restaurants, um, and I've loved this. I've absolutely loved the last hour or so chatting to you. Uh, we've never met beforehand, but seem, we seem to have an awful lot in common and an awful lot of common. We interest. do have to now. We do yeah. have to. <laughs> now. Thank you. Thank um, you for inviting me to do this. It was really fantastic. Thank you. Real so pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Roberto. Thank you so much. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an English conductor who shot to fame after winning the Leeds Conducting Competition in 2005. Since then, he spent eight years as Chief Conductor in Nuremberg, and he is currently the Music Director of the National Arts Centre Orchestra in Ottawa, Canada. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>